Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science, half an hour on your radio where we talk about all things science. And who are we? Well, I'm Stu and I'm joined in the studio by Claire. Hello, Stu. And by Chris. Ahoy there. And you may have heard, guys, uh, that the little Opportunity rover on Mars has been declared officially defunct. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. It's a little, little Oppie, they called it. Oppie. Oh, yeah. It's a cute name. So Oppie, cute Oppie name. has passed away into that great Oof. red planet in the sky. I don't know <laughs> how that works. But I thought I would uh, – there's actually an anniversary coming up of um, another mechanical spacefaring explorer who also passed away in the line of duty. But this was some years ago, way back in the 60s, uh, on a different planet. So I'll – Explain and this isn't science fiction. This no, is, this is this oh, is okay. real. This right. really, really okay. happened. I'll explain exactly the details of that. <laughs> a long later time on. ago in a galaxy far, far away. Well, not that long ago in a galaxy very close to our own. But, um, <laughs> but it's just basically dead robots. Is what it is about. dead robots. We're talking <laughs> dead robots. Uh, Claire. Um, well, today I am. I'm actually answering some a listener question, and not just any listener, but one of um, another community radio show. Um, PBA, the show from Adelaide, has asked us a question about why people put spoons into champagne bottles. It's a very slow way to drink champagne. Well, I mean, so yeah, when people drink spoonful. champagne slowly by the spoonful, or and they can't. Wine. Um, or sparkling wine, and they can't get through it. Um, you put a bit, put it in the fridge, and you put a spoon in the top of it, and it's supposed to keep the bubbles um, in it. So I'm going to discuss why people do that, whether there's ev- any evidence to say that the bubbles stick around, um, and and yeah, so you can you can get the lowdown from science <laughs> on how to keep your bubbles bubbliest. Science of champagne bubbles, mm-hmm. Chris. Well, I am also addressing a listener question. This was an interesting question that we received uh, about um, basically about trying to use gravity to travel to interstellar space or even to bring interstellar space to you. Um, and it brought to mind other kind of schemes like warp drives and that sort of stuff. So I'm going to look at the um, the feasibility of using gravity and distorted space-time to travel to other stars. Excellent. Sounds very interesting all round. Stay tuned. As I mentioned in the intro to the show, a lot of people were sad to hear of the demise of NASA's Opportunity rover on Mars. This which, was a while ago? Well, it was officially declared dead just recently. Oh, gosh. Um, but, it, but it was dead? out of contact. It was out of contact. Well, defunct. I don't really know. What's the robot word? Yeah. What's the correct terminology What's there? The, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. But, but basically NASA have tried to recontact Oppie and got no response. Um, so Oppie went down into a crater and being a solar-powered robot um, didn't get enough sun for a while and they think its batteries just finally... Kaput. Kaput. Um, but, it you know, Opportunity was designed to operate for only 90 days and it lasted almost 60 times longer than that. It's been up there for about 15 years. Wow. That's so pretty good, pretty, pretty good uh, um, overachieving there uh, from Opportunity. But it is a reminder that space exploration is really quite difficult 
even for missions not involving people. And this has been the case since the early days of spaceflight. So March the 1st actually marks the anniversary of another mechanical space explorer hailing from Russia, which in 1966 became the first Earth-made object to touch the surface of another planet. So way back in the 60s, the Soviets were trying to land things on Venus and they sent a whole bunch of spacecraft towards Venus, um, sometimes successfully, sometimes mm. not. I think we've talked about Venus before on the show and how why we never go there anymore. It's because it's really, really difficult. There's really not much to do when you're yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the Soviets had a series of spacecraft called Venera, which is the Russian name for Venus, which they sent to our sunside neighbour, from the 60s until the early 80s. They launched Venera 1 all the way back in 1961. Wow. Venera 1 never left Earth orbit. Oh. It, it, it broke on the way. <laughs> um, so the Russians didn't... Space junk now. They didn't report it. They just went, no, it wasn't a Venus mission. <laughs> it was just a thing that we were doing. This is exactly uh, what we intended to do. Yeah. Uh, Venera 2... Also failed soon after its launch in 1965, um, barely made it out of the Earth's orbit, uh, and apparently there were several other failed missions, but they because they were failed, they didn't get reported as being proper missions. So uh, in November 1965, the Venera 3 was launched and made it to Venus, but was lost to mission control and crashed into the planet. Oh, in early 1966. So March 1st, 1966, uh, spacecraft from Earth touched down on another planet. Is a crash Is a crash count as like a landing on another planet or is a it's crash not, it's, it's a crash landing. Yeah. It touched it, though. Okay, That's, fair enough. Know, they, they got it there. Okay. Uh, in, whether it's in pieces or not, I don't think we can right. tell now. I wonder if um, the microbes are there. So... I wouldn't survive, I don't um, think. Nothing, nothing on board sent any data back to Earth. They just know that it sort of hit the planet and they went. Right. They got there. Uh, it was followed by Venera 4, which was capable of measuring the atmosphere of another planet for the first time in 1967. So they okay. actually, you know, took you know measurements of the atmosphere of, the, of, of a different planet to Earth. Um, and the Russians initially claimed that the craft had landed on the surface of Venus intact. The day after it landed, the US Mariner probe flew past <laughs> and measured the atmospheric pressure on Venus. And they said, yeah, no, it didn't land intact because we know the specifications of your lander. Right. And it got crushed as it landed. And, uh, you know, confronted with this evidence, the Russians retracted their statement <laughs> and said, no, mate, it probably didn't, it probably didn't land and stay intact. Um, you know, this is the height of the Cold War. So there's planetary scandals. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely propagandist um, business going on. Sort of not, not very scientific of them to, um, to be making things up. Um, so Venera 4's hull was not strong enough to survive the pressure. Um, so realising the next two craft would also be crushed, the Russian Space Agency redesigned the following two missions to test the atmosphere. So they went, oh, no, we're just going to test the atmosphere with these ones. We're not going to try and land them. Uh, they did They did land, but they basically um, 
had parachutes and they parachuted down into the atmosphere, measuring it as they fell. And they sent back about an hour of an hour's worth of data before they failed. Mm-hmm. Um, then they launched Venera Seven, which was designed to be capable of a soft landing, um, but didn't really carry much in the way of other equipment. So they were so intent on getting something that could land intact, they sort of went, "Well, we'll just see if this works first. And they didn't really load it up with anything. So there was um, uh, a little tiny bit of data was sent back, uh, but it was still the first spacecraft to do this from another planet's surface. So back in the back in the sixties, um, there are another nine Venera missions. They just did not give up. They were just throwing things up there onto Venus <laughs> and hoping that they landed. Um, the the Venera Seven also, when it landed, fell over. So its its parachutes failed at the last sort of bit of its descent. So it landed on its side, and the data that it could transmit was very limited. So I think, oh, yeah, I that's think, so must be so frustrating. Yeah, yeah. I think we should like kind of yeah repeat like it's some of the salient facts about Venus. It's called like the pressure. I refer to pressure like ten times that of Earth or something like that. Oh, it's a massive amount of pressure. It, it would yeah. be really difficult to land something on there at all. The temperatures on the surface are hot enough to melt lead. They're like four hundred degrees or something ridiculous like that. Is that also very windy? Windy. Um, I think there's wind, but there's also like sulfuric acid rain. Mm. <laughs> um, so you kind of it is hard for a spaceship to survive in yeah. those conditions. Yeah, it is. Um, but yeah, so there was another nine Venera missions with increasingly complex experiments and, you know, different equipment on board. They sent uh, vehicles with cameras and radar equipment. And the last two missions, the last two Venera missions were orbiters that were mapping, just mapping the surface of Venus. So they did get a lot of data about Venus and realized basically there's not really any good reason yeah, to go reason back. To go back. <laughs> um the last Venera mission was in 1985, and there have been other Venus-related uh, missions, um, but the Russian early Russian efforts are the most comprehensive um, exploration of Venus so far. Um, unlikely people will ever go to Venus. There's just not any real reason for them to. Well, if a robot can't survive, you yeah. think that a human might have some trouble as well. Um, but plans do We could exist. always ask Matt Damon to... Oh, there's a sequel, like from yeah, the Martians. Yeah. The, the, the Venusian. Venusian. The Venusian, yeah. Um, pl- there are plans uh, for further robotic missions to Venus in the relatively near future. So they are planning the Venera D, which is uh, going to be a much more advanced landing craft and may contain NASA components as well. So uh, it would make it Oppie's cousin of sorts. Um, but hopefully it will exceed expectations just like Oppie did on Mars. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So we've had another audience question, this time from our good friends from the show on PBA FM in South Australia. Love a bit of Community Radio cross-pollination. Yep. Hello, the show. Hello, the show. Hello, hello. And the question the show want us to investigate is what is the deal with putting a spoon or sometimes a fork in a half-open bottle of champagne to keep the champagne from losing all its delicious bubble? So have I have, I've have, heard this. And have you ever done it? Well, I've, I was told 
many years ago that you had to put a silver, it had to specifically be a silver spoon mm-hmm. and it had to be in contact <laughs> with, the, uh, with, the with the champagne. So I, so you kind of drunk too much champagne. Yeah, you, 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 you've sort of got to leave, you know, you've had one glass oh and then God. really you shouldn't be popping bottles of champagne if you're just going to have one glass. It seems a bit of a waste. But, seems a bit of a waste, yeah. doesn't it? Have you ever done it, Chris? Uh, it's, I'm sure I have. Uh, no, I reckon I wouldn't have done it. I'm sure someone I know has done it and I would have rolled my eyes <laughs> you and gone. Are distancing yourself from this completely, aren't you? Well, it just you're, a- you're hoping that what I found is that there was no evidence. Well, I guess I wouldn't expect it to work. Just, just like gut instinct. But also, how would you know? I mean, like you go, oh, this is slightly fizzier than I thought it would be. I mean, you wouldn't know. It's like not very scientific. Yeah, totally. I mean, and also, I, mean- I, I, have a, uh, I have a little bottle stopper that... I just put in my champagne bottles if I need to keep Oh, them. right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, um, before I get to the evidence as to whether it works, um, let's have let's start with some basic champagne chemistry. All right. So the bubbles that you get in champagne are carbon dioxide bubbles. They're mm. produced through natural yeast fermentation. Now, carbon dioxide is a lot like other gases. Um, it has different solubility in water, or in this situation, wine, um, depending on the temperature of the water. So when water's cold, carbon dioxide is more soluble. So it goes from a gas state into a um, into the water and becomes carbonic dissolved. Acid. And carbonic acid as carbonic acid. Exactly. Thank you, Chris. Um, so this is because the water... Um, the water it's dissolved in, the cold water has less kinetic energy and thus the gases are less able to escape. But at high temperatures, the liquid molecules um, themselves are moving faster and so this, this mobility and this energy um, means that the gas molecules can get out quicker. So you've got um, less solubility um, of carbon dioxide when you have a warmer water. Yeah? Right. So this is why when you try to open a fizzy drink that's warm, um, all the fizz comes out. If you ever have um, have had you know, a bottle of soda water in the back of your car um, and it's been a hot day and then you got to open it, it just goes everywhere, like yeah. absolutely everywhere. But if the same bottle of soda water has been in the fridge or in the or like super cool down in the esky and you open it, it's just a slight fizz. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is good to know when you want to enjoy champagne. So if you want to keep the bubbles in champagne for a long time, you need to make sure the champagne is as cold as possible without letting it get frozen. You want to keep that temperature pretty pretty close down to, at that like three, four degree mark. Now let's turn our attention to why people put um, the spoon in the bottle. Uh, now I've done a bit of uh, – ex- no, let's just say I've done extensive research uh, on Google, that is, and – other than the, f- you know, other than the fact that other people say that it works, I can't find a lot of sort of scientific hypotheses about why this spoon in the top's a good idea, or even where it started, or even where it started. Um, it's I'm starting to think it's one of those things like why my old Greek relatives would put soda waters bottle bottles full of water on there. Gardens to keep the dogs to keep the dogs from peeing. I just like what like I don't, you know like one of those things that people just do because yeah, yeah. other just, people just do it. Urban folklore. Yeah, yeah. urban folklore. Yeah. Exactly. Um, the closest I came to an answer was from one definitely not peer reviewed website that suggests that the spoon acts as a thermometer. Sorry, a, t- a temperature regulator. 
So it absorbs the warm air from the neck of the bottle. Um, the air around the, the spoon gets colder. And as the cold air is denser than the warm air, the, tea, the, the spoon creates a kind of um, air stopper preventing the gas from escaping. <laughs> this seems very... <laughs> so sort of like an air plug. But it's it's not really plugging No, anything. it isn't. It isn't plugging anything, is it? And, I mean, it's sort of confusing to me if it's in the fridge, then everything's cooling down at the same temperature. You know, the... Unless you're putting the f- spoon in the freezer beforehand, how are you cooling down the air in the neck any quicker? I don't know. Anyway, it seems ridiculous. So anyway, there's that bizarre hypothesis. Um, so now let's look at the evidence as to whether it actually works. Luckily, there are some scientists from Stanford University who undertook um, a what they call an extracurricular investigation. This is like a Chris Lessig investigation um, mm-hmm. where they didn't do it on air, but they did it in their spare time um, and it's not peer-reviewed, so just keep that in mind, um, of whether the teaspoon um, has preser- preservative powers. This, hap- this, this is what they did in 1994. So it's been a good 25 years since this wow. took place. We need new research. We do need new research, yeah. And I, for one, will put up my hand. Okay. Yeah, so long as it's like the the good champagne. Okay. I don't want any of this sparkling white wine. Okay. All right. Okay. How do you feel about prosecco? <laughs> I feel okay about prosecco. Okay. Yep. Oh, yeah. Okay. So the main researcher was chemist Richard Zare, and he got a bunch of his friends and colleagues together, and they uncorked several bottles of bubbly. Um, they refrigerated them for twenty six hours in a fridge without anything else in it, so it it wasn't there was no um, cross contamination mm-hmm. of any smells in the fridge, and um, and they used different preservation methods. So the bottles were masked. Uh, when they came out, so the tasters could not tell which pairs they had received, and they they had five different treatments. So the first treatment was um, they opened the bottle just before the test, so that it was in the fridge, and then they opened the bottle and they served it. <laughs> the second one was they opened it 26 hours earlier and left it uncorked in the fridge. Uh, third one was they left it for 26 hours with a silver spoon in the next silver or stainless steel, actually. Oh, okay. Yep, yep. Um, and the fifth one was they opened the bottle and then they recorked it and then they put it in. Oh. Yep, yep. Um, That's got to be hard, though, getting that cork back in because it expands. Right? Yeah. Maybe they, they need... just used another cork, maybe. Then may, yeah, maybe. But. That might have been cross-contamination. Oh. Anyway, the team tested and scored 10 bottles, carefully controlled for temperature, um, and make sh- made sure they removed the champagne at the same time and drunk it at the same time. Yep, so all those sorts of controls. And the results were quite surprising for them. The spoons were not especially successful in maintaining the sparkle of the wine, but the spoons and all the other treatments worked better um, than recorking the bottle and putting it back in the fridge. Yep. Um, Recorking seemed to be the best way for champagne to lose its effervescence and taste um, completely. So that was the worst of the five um, options that they had. 
And what ranked the highest was just leaving the bottle open and untreated in the refrigerator for 26 hours. Um, This treatment averaged a higher score than any of the other treatments, including the just open champagne. That sounds, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I'll question there. Maybe these people just don't like champagne very much and they don't really know what they're doing. You know, I wonder about this. I'm like, well, at what point did they test that? Was that five glasses of champagne in? And would that, you know, if they're testing one after the other, maybe they're just a bit drunk. I don't know. Surely there's like... Surely they had to... What what sort of scientists were they? Chemists. Mm. Surely there's a way to actually measure the carbon dioxide content or the number of bubbles or this kind of thing. I would think a chemist could measure... Carbon dioxide Cal- content yeah, of a liquid, surely. Yeah. I'm sure it's just some sort of litmus test, not a litmus test, but some sort of test. Exactly, some sort of test. Some sort of test. Yeah, you can't <laughs> Maybe they just wanted to charge the uh, the department for the 28 bottles of champagne. I think you're on to um, the real reason for this extracurricular activity, yeah. Stu. So, yeah, as, as you can see, there were many limitations to the study and um, as the researchers said that uh, – Definitely more research needs to take place for us to draw any conclusions. They also said that um, they would very happily um, try using um, a higher quality champagne, maybe Don Perignon, um, instead of their sparkling wine, those chemists. Um, But, yeah, I would suggest everyone have a go at it over the weekend and um, if you find anything different then please let us know what you find and uh, cheers You're listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and we're doing well. We're getting quite a few questions. We love answering listener or fellow radio station questions, as the case may be, with champagne and that sort of thing. Don't we? Yeah, yes. we love it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, please send us in your questions. Yeah, we've got a recent one from, I believe it was Sarah, who had a suggestion, um, rather than a question, comment rather than a question, perhaps. Um, but we're taking it as a question? We're taking it as a question. Okay. Um, suggestion was that if you want to travel to a different star, you don't have to go into a ship to get there. Why don't you just use gravity to pull the star closer? Now, points for trying, I guess. Um, I think that if you're able to to move your spaceship, like instead, if you're able to move a star towards you, you should be able to move a spaceship towards a star a lot easier. But no, it's an interesting idea, though, of what it would take to do this. You know, would that be feasible, I guess, to to move things around using gravity rather than like firing rockets, just using gravity to distort space and time? How? How? Well, you're well, okay. So you basically would need a lot of mass to do this. So I did some calculations because I thought, what would it actually take to do it? Because I didn't think it was feasible. So I did some calculations to see what would it require. So the nearest star to Earth is 4.2 light years away. Well, apart from the sun, obviously, that's like the nearest. That is star. definitely yeah. the nearest. Yeah. Before, yeah. before people it's write a bit in, you know, with objections. I know. The nearest star that's not the sun. The nearest star other than the sun is about 4.2 light years away. Now, supposing we wanted to get like a, I don't know, like a normal everyday acceleration to get towards the sea, let's go for 1G of acceleration. Doesn't sound extreme, does it? 
No. To of acceleration at that start point. Now, yeah. the um the way you can just do the calculations using Newton's universal law of gravitation. We're using the inverse square law of the distance to that star. So I did that. I plugged in the numbers to work out what sort of mass you would need to pull the nearest star to to Earth. Um, apart from the sun, um, with an acceleration of 1g. And the the mass that you would need to accumulate here to do this would be something like um, 2.3 by 10 to the 44 kilograms, which is about um, uh, 100 trillion times the mass of the sun. So, so we just need a star that's 100 trillion trillion times the mass mass of the sun and we'd be able to do it well i mean of course you wouldn't you'd have trouble doing that because obviously <laughs> if you had that much mass you would have quite a large black hole mm. to do that now i thought for fun because obviously it's going to be black hole, i thought for fun i'm going to get how big would this black hole be because black holes there's a kind of a characteristic radius the radius of the event horizon there's a very simple formula for calculating it and and what's our closest black hole uh oh i don't know how, you know, i mean i don't know whether closest black hole it might be about 50 light years away i'm not sure exactly but this is like just just for just for fun i thought how big would this black hole be it could be like a really big black hole um so you can calculate it it's not it's a fairly simple form of the Schwarzschild radius the black hole would have a radius of 36.7 light years so the black hole would be bigger <laughs> than the distance to the nearest star so okay yeah this is not going to work is what i'm saying right yeah um, so, no, I don't think we can actually move stars around using mass because we haven't got enough mass to do so. However, as I said in the introduction, it did remind me of other schemes to manipulate space-time to travel to interstellar space. And one of the most famous one is the warp drive, which you may be familiar with if you ever watched Star Trek. Anyone? Yeah. Star Trek? Yeah, yeah. Nerds? Yeah. Star yes. Trek. Um, Sorry, I'm staying silent for a reason. Okay. Well, uh, warp drive, you know, the way it's depicted in the television show and movies is a little, um, the spaceship is inside a warp bubble that somehow allows it to travel faster than the speed of light. Um, and there is... They're a bit vague on the details, are they? Well, they're getting less vague because in 1994, Mexican physicist Miguel Alcubierre, um, who was inspired by Star Trek, he came up with a way to actually make this work. Wow. Essentially, he... Because in, in using general relativity, you can distort space-time. Well, general relativity, gravity distorts space and time. And what you can do is you can sort of use the equations, you can work out what kind of shape of space-time you want and then use it to work out the energy distribution that would do this. So he decided to, to try and do this. Um, and, yeah, to come with this idea for a warp bubble. And then you basically, it is a hypothetical way of travelling faster than speed of light because there is a loophole. There is an actual loophole in this whole rule about you tra can't travel faster than the speed of light. And that is that nothing can move through space faster than the speed of light. However, um, space itself can move faster than the speed of light. So it can expand and contract. So what you do is you have the spaceship sitting inside a bubble. The front part of the bubble is contracting really fast and the back part is expanding really fast. And that way the spaceship is just not a nice little kind of bit of flat space time. Mm. Sounds great, but it um, requires kinds of energy and mass that as far as we know, doesn't really exist. Like, has basically got to have negative energy, which is essentially anti-gravity, to be able to repel space enough that it can expand the way you want it to do. There's many, many other problems with it that people calculated. Um, yeah, in fact, the physicist himself does not think it's going to be feasible. But it's an interesting idea, and he's now, apparently later Star Trek technical manuals quote him saying he came up with the theory behind it. Um, but there are actually people trying to build these, even though most people say it's not possible. Uh, there is an engineer in NASA, Harold White, who has done his own calculations, you know, using Miguel Lasubier's kind of 
um, theory, and he's tweaked the theory a little bit. He's changed the the distribution of the of the kind of the ring of negative energy you need to have around it, and he reckons he can get down the amount of energy needed to be roughly the equivalent sort of mass energy of say the Voyager one spacecraft. Like if you converted all the mass of that spacecraft to energy, mm-hmm. you could essentially he thinks you could you could run it. Not everyone agrees with him, but he hasn't stopped him. He's, he's pushing ahead doing experiments with like a much smaller scale, trying to measure any kind of distortion of space and time to prove the, um, the proof of principle. Um, like I said, it's it's probably not going to work, but it's an interesting idea, and I think we need to look for these kind of loopholes if we ever do want to travel to another to another star. But um, hey, it's a bit of fun. It's a bit of science fiction inspired space travel. Nothing wrong with that. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the radio network with the Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a email account, Lost in Science at email. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook. Uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, can always tune in again next week where the team once again get lost in science! listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.